This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Just going through my mail here, excuse me. <laughs> A little uh, behind, I haven't been in the studio of, uh, for about four weeks. I was on the road in, uh, in Los Angeles uh, filming uh, episodes or interviews for our upcoming uh, uh, season three of the television show. And uh, thank you once again for Victor Vigiani for stepping in over the holidays and doing such yeoman's duty. Uh, Victor, of course, from Zeland News Network, uh, who joins me uh, from time to time on the air to uh, discuss uh, ETs and uh, uh, UFOs, etc. So thank you, Victor. Uh, anyway, I just got a letter. I've been worried about Nils Hammerin. Nils joins us uh, also from time to time. Now, Nils is up in his 80s, although he wouldn't m- m- know it if you met him. He's just a, an incredibly energetic uh, a healthy, um, uh, 80 year old, although he must be 82 now. Anyway, I was a little, I've been a little bit worried about Nils because he was really in the eye of, uh, of, uh, Sandy, uh, down in New Jersey. He's not too far from the, uh, the Jersey shore, hailing from Somerville. Nils is, uh, the man behind the End Times Press and, uh, the author of The Seal of the End Times. And, uh, really an expert in biblical prophecy and so forth. And as I say, he joins us on the air from time to time. It's been quite a while. And I've been trying to call Nils with uh, no success since, uh, probably first week of December. Uh, no, later than that, um, end of November. Anyway, so as I say, starting to get worried. And then I got this letter from, uh, Nils. Uh, dear Richard, just a short memo to let you know that I've not been erased yet. When Hurricane Sandy hit Somerville, I thought we were all safe because of the high elevation. They're at about 700 feet. Sometime near 9 p.m., our building got hit by a mini tornado. There was a sudden buildup of hollowing or hallowing wind. Our feed to the TV began pulling through the wall, and the brick building shook. In seconds, the roof of the entire building was removed and transported to the parking lot. At the same time, water began cascading into our apartment. Water was all over. New Jersey inspected the building, and we were told we had to get out because of mold. A few days later, we were put in a vacant apartment 25 minutes away. Our phones are down, but heat and electric are still working in Somerville. Our mail is working at Box uh, 1000, Somerville. Uh, uh, That's the End Times Press, so I don't feel, you know, there's no problem in revealing his address. At Box 1000, Somerville, mail is still coming in, uh, in the same Somerville mailboxes, uh, we will be told when we can return to apartment, uh, his, he names his apartment, in about five to six weeks. The roof is being repaired today. The apartment will be new when we go back. So that's the present situation. We don't have a phone working yet. Thank you for uh, the DVD you sent on the Antichrist. N- Nils was in season one of the TV show, was in our Antichrist episode, so I sent him that. We'll be in touch and hope you guys are all okay. Your buddy Nils, Nils Hammond. Well, that's a relief, i got to tell you, to know that Nils is safe and sound. And if you're listening, Nils, I know he's able to uh, t- tune in down there. 
listening in on AM 740, our flagship station. Uh, good to know that you're well and uh, all the best to you and Beth. And I look forward to getting you back on the program. So please uh, drop me a note when your phones are back up. All right. Uh, I had an interesting conversation over the holidays uh, with a, a local paranormal investigator. They go and they investigate hauntings and uh, paranormal activity, or what what is what the owner of the house believes is paranormal activity. So he was explaining that he and his team went into this house where this person was seeing these shadowy presences, and uh, there was a room upstairs where toys were being thrown around, one of the children's rooms. And uh, so what they did was they cl- that the whole family cleared out. They went into the into the house, big old farmhouse, uh, out uh, Stratford Way here in Ontario. They went down into the basement, and uh, this is something I'd not known. But they were they were trying to communicate with this presence, and they laid two flashlights on the table. Uh, the one on the left was for yes, and the one on the on the on the right was for no. And they asked this entity. Uh, they said, do you need our help? And they, they instructed the entity to, to turn on one of the flashlights. And the one on the left, as I say, I think went no, and the one on the right said yes. So the flashlight turned on. Yes, I need help. Are you a male or a female? Or, or are you male? And then it was no. And then, okay, so you're female. Yes. Uh, went on and on and had this, this fairly lengthy communication with the spirit. And, um, uh, so that got me, you know, sort of intrigued by this form of communi- communication. I went on YouTube and I found episodes from an actual paranormal investigator TV show that's on, I think, the History Channel or something. And it's true. I mean, th- these, uh, this is a, is a form of communication that investigators use. And I don't know, there may have been some trickery involved, but I, I saw an episode and they were, in fact, communicating with an entity and I watched the flashlights being turned off and on. So then, long story short, I tried to have this conversation with uh, a colleague of mine who works in the mainstream media, and the person just completely shut down. I said, well, I think this is interesting. What do you think? They didn't even want to have a conversation about it. They just rolled their eyes, uh, you know, derisively, and basically backed out of the room slowly, which, quite frankly, I'm used to. I get a lot of that. But, you know, it's interesting. You, you, You can't go certain places with certain people. Uh, and often this is the case if someone has some certain scientific, uh, uh, you know, background. They have certain parameters and boundaries within which they operate. And if you dare go outside, uh, they don't know how to, it doesn't compute. It's like you ever go into a McDonald's and you go, you try to order off the menu. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a fun thing to do. They just, you know, they just shut down the person. That does not compute. I don't know how to have this conversation. Please go away. Uh, anyway, thankfully, there are people out there uh, who have a background in science, mathematics, for example, who are willing to have these conversations. And that's my next guest. Dr. James D. Stein is a past member of the Institute of Advanced Studies. He's currently a professor of mathematics at California State University, Long Beach. His list of publications is extensive with more than 30 research articles on mathematics and includes the books How Math Explains the World and his latest the Paranormal Equation, a new science perspective on remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena where he's here to talk about how science uh, or whether science can explain the unexplainable. Dr. James D. Stein, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Um, hi, Richard. Thanks for inviting me on your show, and I'm a lot better in Redondo Beach, California, than I am where Nils is in New Jersey. Ah, indeed, yes. And will be until the earthquake hits. <laughs> All right, well, until such time, uh, good to have you aboard. Now, as a mathematics professor, why would you even venture into this territory? I mean, mathematicians traditionally are pretty conservative. Well, scientists as a whole are pretty conservative in general, science being a very conservative activity. But nonetheless, there's a history of a lot of scientists, including really top scientists, who have believed in the supernatural and the paranormal and have been willing to investigate it. And my own personal interest uh, started, I would say, back when I was about 12 or 13 years old, because I was raised in a non-religious family, and so the concept of life after death was uh, never even I, never even occurred to me. And at about the time that I was 12 or 13 years old, there was a series of articles in the New York Herald Tribune about Bridie Murphy. Now, I don't know whether or not your listeners are familiar with Bridie Murphy, because, as I say, this occurred sometime in the 1950s, but Bridie Murphy 
was presumably an individual who lived in the 18th century, and a woman named Virginia Ty was subjected to past life regression by a hypnotist. And under hypnosis, she started channeling this person, Bridie Murphy, who presumably lived in 18th century Ireland. And she started speaking with an Irish accent. And um, the New York Herald Tribune ran, uh, ran a series of articles, and it was fascinating. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. And obviously, it must have interested a lot of other people as well, because... Uh, uh, the the series ran for about uh, uh, ran extensively. I don't remember how long, but I just remember waiting until my father got home and would give me the papers so that I could read more about it. And then, um, even though this was by no means fraud in the sense that it was deliberately perpetuated, it was later discovered that there was a woman named Bridie Murphy Corkle who'd been a long forgotten neighbor of uh, Virginia Ties and who had probably related some of the stories, and as a result, the Bridie Murphy experience got discredited. As I said, it wasn't fraudulent, but it was discredited simply because there was another explanation. And about that time, I was starting to get interested in math and science, and I liked the fact that math and science had explanations for stuff. But nonetheless, um, over the course of the years, I noted that there were a lot of mathematicians and scientists who believed in the supernatural and the paranormal. And that struck me as sort of strange, simply because science demands proof. And to date, there has been no proof of anything supernatural or paranormal. But nonetheless, my, uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, you had this friend who, as soon as you mentioned it, shut up and said, you know, sort of, it does not compute. I don't think all all mathematicians and scientists are like that. And I think that, in general, science is best served by people keeping an open mind. And um, if you look at some of the distinguished scientists who've looked at problems like this, such as Albert Einstein, um, the psychiatrist uh, Jan Ehrenwald um, was very interested in telepathy, and he communicated with Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein said explicitly, um, when it, when he was asked whether or not he uh, he believed that physics had anything to say about telepathy, he said, "I don't believe that from an a priori standpoint we can say that telepathy does not exist. For such a statement, our science is just." too unsure and too incomplete at the moment. And I think that's the attitude that science should have about things such as the paranormal and the supernatural. I think it has to take uh, note of the fact that to date, there's been nothing solid proved. But you can't prove it doesn't happen, and there's enough anecdotal in, uh, evidence and information to keep the books open and keep investigating. At least that's my particular point of view. I, admittedly, as someone who sort of uh, delves into paranormal research, one of the, one of the, the shortcomings uh, of paranormal researchers is uh, to argue from ignorance. So, for example, um, we don't know what that, uh, that sound is coming from the attic, and therefore it must be a ghost. Uh, or we don't know what those lights are up in the sky, but so therefore they must be ETs. That's a problem. But, but I mean, how do you think we should frame that question? We don't know what that sound is in the attic, therefore... Oh, I think at that stage what you just have to say is we don't know what that sound in the attic is. Um, what we can do is we can make lots of attempts to uh, understand what that sound is from the standpoint of the science that we already know. Um, for instance, when you, uh, when you described your friend who did the experiment in which, with the two flashlights, now, in uh, what a scientist, I, and, and understand, I'm a mathematician, not a scientist in the Senate, but mathematics is, mathematics is definitely um, intimately related to the sciences. And I'd like to think that if I'm not a scientist, I'm at least a science, scientist want to be. I've written a lot about science. Most of us think science is incapable of explaining supernatural phenomena. This would include everything from ghosts and communication with the dead to ESP, precognition, telekinesis. Scientists are generally highly skeptical of the existence of such phenomena because of the lack of the rigorous documentation that science requires. Nevertheless, 
Many great scientists have believed and do believe in the supernatural. So says James D. Stein, the author of The Paranormal Equation, New Scientific Perspective on Remote Viewing, Clairvoyance, and Other Inexplicable Phenomena. So James, before the break, uh, I was asking you, so how, as a scientist, do you approach uh, the seemingly inexplicable, unexplainable? Well, um, a friend of mine once said to me something that I found uh, really cogent. He said that the universe consists of three facts, the known facts, the unknown facts, and the unknowable facts. And in order to, to distinguish between them, a known fact is something like Mount Everest is the highest mountain on Earth. There aren't any. We've measured them all. That's the highest. An unknown fact is whether or not life exists on Mars. We don't know whether or not life exists on Mars, but presumably at some stage we'll build, uh, you know, we'll build rockets that will get us to Mars. We'll take a look around and then we'll know. And even if we never get to Mars, nonetheless, this is something that is certainly knowable in the sense that if we did get to Mars, we'd find out whether or not life exists. So that's an unknown fact at the moment. But an unknowable fact would be something that is true, yet is something that science could not demonstrate. And whether or not unknowable facts exist or not is something that um, is something that you might wonder about. And it wasn't until the middle of the uh, 20th century that mathematics actually discovered that there were that there were mathematically true propositions that mathematics itself was unable to prove. Now that sounds sort of strange when you when you first listen to it. How can something be true and yet you not be able to prove it? Mm. And that has to do with uh, that has to do with the way we actually go about determining in mathematics whether something is true or not. And this isn't really uh, you know, this isn't really going to go into mathematics and be sort of uh, be sort of technical. Thank but it's you. It's pretty easy to understand. <laughs> okay. Um, if you wanted to determine whether or not the sum, uh, suppose that somebody said to you, the sum of two odd numbers is an odd number. Well, you could just say, hey, three is odd, five is odd, three plus five is eight, that's an even number. So what you just said is false. Right. Um, now, there are certain mathematical facts that have been proven. You learned one in high school that, uh, you know, the Pythagorean theorem that in a right triangle, the square of the hypotenuse is the sum of the squares of the other two sides. And that's proved by logic. But it's possible that there are facts which are, that there are statements which are true, but which cannot be proved simply because the nature of proof requires us to be able to write things down in a finite amount of space and to be able to read them in a finite amount of time. And you can't prove that, for instance, if you were to ask to determine that the Pythagorean theorem, you couldn't determine whether or not the Pythagorean theorem was true by looking at all possible right triangles. There just isn't enough time. So what you have to do is you have to come up with a logical argument. And up until the, 20, the middle of the 20th century, people thought that if something was true, you'd be able to prove it. If something wasn't true, well, there's a counterexample somewhere like the 3 plus 5 equals 8, um, and you'll be able to find it. But a very famous mathematician proved in the middle of the 20th century that, well, actually in the 1930s, that there were true statements in mathematics that you could never be able to prove. And my contention is that if you look at what that says for science, if you extend that idea to science, it means that there are true statements about the universe that are physical statements, you know, similar to Einstein's theory of relativity or electromagnetism or gravity, in which they're true, they determine things that actually operate in the physical universe that we'll never be able to prove. And in that sense, that would be something that is unknowable. It's unknowable because it's true, but we'll never be able to prove it. All right. So what does that tell us, for example, about, let's take a look at the remote viewing program, and ESP, clairvoyance. I recently traveled to Palo Alto, California, and I met Russell Targ, who I know is featured in your book. Uh, who, along with Harold Putoff, formed the Stanford uh, Research Institute, uh, you know, in an investigation into uh, psychic phenomena. Now, Russell told me 
he sat down sat down with me in his living room and he said there is more evidence of that ESP is real and measurable than there is for example than that 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 bare aspirin cures headaches or can alleviate headaches and he says there's there's all the documentation we need the the the, the verdict is in he said how do you respond to a to to a claim like that well, first of all, Targ, um, Targ is a respected physicist. He's a respected scientist. He had publications involving lasers um, long before lasers were used to scan the prices in the supermarket. And so, um, you know, this is somebody whose opinion I respect. What I would want, however, the fact is that the physics community and the scientific community as a whole has either not looked at the evidence that Targ ha- uh, that Targ can present, or if it has looked at it, it's reached a conclusion different from the one that he has reached. And this is a story that has happened continually throughout the history of science. When you you know when you read you know when you read a book about science, what you see is what science has discovered. Um, what you don't see is all the infighting and the uh, all the infighting and the arguing and the experiments that either proved it or didn't prove it that went on prior to when it was fully established. Now, as far as the statement about bare aspirin curing headaches, um, I think there's you know there's there's uh, established scientific test to the effect that I'm uh, not necessarily Bayer aspirin, but aspirin has a positive effect on a lot of different, you know, on a lot of different conditions. It's been used for aspirin, not aspirin per se, that was invented in the late 19th century, but uh, uh, the active ingredient in aspirin, which I think is in the willow tree, that's been used for centuries, maybe even millennia. So there's a long history that that works. Believe me, it's in Bayer's interest to come up with studies that show that Bayer aspirin works, and those studies actually exist and are accepted by the scientific community. Um, if there is a study um, that that can show that remote viewing or telepathy or ESP is an established phenomena, uh, to the uh, to the extent that aspirin curing headaches is, I don't know of it, and I think the uh, um, I think the onus is on Targ to actually demonstrate it. And this is a relatively straightforward procedure. If he has the proof that will demonstrate it, he should be able to do so. The fact that these and if he does demonstrate it. Um, to the uh, in an unequivocal sense, I believe the scientific community will accept it because what has happened countless times before in science is that there has been an idea which goes against the grain of what everybody accepts, and then somebody demonstrates it unequivocally, and everybody says, "Okay, we're wrong. The new idea is right." And what Targ has might well be in that category, but at the moment he hasn't done it. At least um, my feeling is that if something like remote viewing or ESP is unconditionally established, what would happen is it would be getting more hits than anything on the Internet, even than the Kardashians or reality shows. And it hasn't happened yet. Well, there are millions of hits on remote viewing, but tell me, do do you believe that it's a hoax? I don't believe, uh, here's what I believe. I don't believe, uh, believe that it's a hoax in the sense that, um, in the sense that somebody deliberately sets up a remote viewing experiment with the intention to defraud people and, uh, and show that something is not the case. However, what I do believe is that many paranormal phenomena uh, fall under the heading of you haven't looked at the entire data set. And if you were to, um, I, I don't think maybe remote viewing is the best, uh, is the best of the paranormal phenomena to illustrate this. I think precognition is. I think almost everybody has at some stage awakened in the middle of the night and with the feeling that something something bad has happened to someone they know or love. And so what they do is they make a phone call. 99.99% of the time, that person is fine. 
and you never hear about the phone call because this portion of the data is never recorded. On the other hand, the one time in whatever that there is something wrong, all of a sudden that appears in the data supporting precognition. And I think the same is true of remote viewing as it stands in the, at the moment. I don't believe that, uh, you know, I'm with Albert Einstein. I don't believe that the physics that I'm familiar with, and as I said, I'm not a physicist, can Un, uh, can unconditionally outlaw remote viewing. I think there are ways for remote viewing to be a viable phenomena. And as a matter of fact, I have a friend who, uh, uh, a good friend of mine claims that, although I wouldn't exactly call it remote viewing, I think it's more, um, I think it's more deja vu. He's walked into rooms and has known what is going to be in those rooms even before he walks into it. Um, and I believe him. You know, I believe that that he's had this experience. However, I believe that there are millions of people who've walked into a room thinking that they're going to see something. It's not there, and they don't tell you about it. But I don't see that we can a priori uh, discard remote viewing as a possible phenomenon. But I'd sure like to see Targ's proofs, and if he's willing to send them to me, I'd love to look at them. All right, and uh, just uh, uh, not a scientific study, but uh, remote viewing, uh, Google, 31 million hits, the Kardashians, 28 million. <laughs> so the remote viewing has it, but uh, that's hardly, uh, you know, uh, apropos of nothing. Uh, regardless, uh, the paranormal equation, James D. Stein, Ph.D., a new scientific perspective on remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena. But just continuing on with the remote viewing program uh, at Stanford University, uh, again, not scientific scientific evidence, but it was funded by the U.S. government and the military for about 20, 25 years. I mean, that surely is suggestive of something. It certainly is. Um, and one of the things, uh, um, one of the reasons that I believe that the remote viewing program was funded was because it was known at the time that the Russians and the Chinese also had funded remote viewing programs. And boy, I'll tell you, um, uh, you don't want anybody to get a jump on you. Um, especially uh, countries that you consider may have hostile interest towards yours. And if they're looking at something, um, if they might conceivably find it, you want to, you know, you want to be looking at it also. However, the record, um, as far as I know, the record is that um, those projects have been uh, have been abandoned by the government, and they've been abandoned by and the government, as you know. Well, I don't know about the Canadian government, but I sure know about the American government. They're willing to dump lots of money into totally ridiculous programs, and if they've stopped funding something, it's really a pretty good indication that they haven't found anything that they consider to be remotely. You should pardon the ad adverb there, um, worth funding in the future. Uh, just um, a heads up that uh, Russell Targ will be on the show. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get him on before the end of the month, but he has a new book out. It's called uh, The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. So, uh, James, I know you'll be uh, looking forward to that, and uh, I'd be interested in getting your your uh, perspective on I think it. it's by the same publisher that published my book. So, uh, yes, I'm very interested. Hey, maybe I should get the both of you on together and have a friendly... Um, uh, do you know something? I would, I, would love, uh, uh, I would love to do so. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, I freely confess that I'm a skeptic, but just because one is a skeptic doesn't mean that, um, that one digs in his heels and says, this is a line that you can't cross. Um, that, uh, in fact, I think that, you know... Um, I think that people who, uh, you know, the person to whom you referred to earlier, um, when you said, okay, it does not compute and they're not going to go there, I think that's an exception. The mere fact, you know, as you mentioned, there are 31 million hits on, uh, on remote viewing. And my guess is that if you were to talk to a lot of scientists, what they'd say is, you, um, I, that yes, they think that the idea is very interesting, but at the moment, Science hasn't found anything that can confirm it. And basically in science, you're guilty until you're proved innocent. All right. Uh, we'll take a time out. Dr. James Stein stays with us. The Paranormal Equation. Can science explain the unexplainable? Back with more. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
Buenos Dias World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos Dias World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos Dias World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos Dias World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A trusted sponsor of my show, GetTheTea.com, is having their summer sale. Hey guys, let's talk about Father's Day. What kind of gift would you like to give your dad? Why not think about a gift that would help his digestion? Remember, Life Change Tea is an amazing, gentle cleanse that he can use daily for gut health. Who doesn't need that? I know I do. I drink it every day. It comes in three different flavors, natural, peppermint, and my favorite, pomegranate. You need to try it. The combination of 12 herbs just does a beautiful number on my insides. Right now, they're having their big summer sale. Buy three, get one free. That's right, buy three, get one free. Life Change Tea is not a fad. They've been around since 2007 helping thousands of people, and it's made right in the USA. It's easy to brew, keep it in your fridge, and you drink it daily. It's summertime, and I always want to have a big glass of iced tea. That's why I drink Life Change Tea. Buy now and get one month of tea for free. Go to getthetea.com forward slash Richard to order yours today. Use the code Richard10 to get an additional $10 off plus free shipping. That's over $50 in savings. Again, that's getthetea.com forward slash Richard and use the code Richard and the number 10, Richard10 for $10 more plus free shipping. Don't miss out. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Jim Stein is with us, uh, the author of How Math Explains the World, uh, but his latest is The Paranormal Equation, a new scientific perspective on remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena. Let's get to Jeff, who's been very patient, waiting along uh, on the line in Michigan. Jeff, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Serrett. Uh, your guest, uh, Mr. Uh, Stein, I'd like to know if he has a known mathematical formula or something that would explain levitation with a Ouija board or a table or perhaps multiple levitation using this. Because, see, some of my friends and I are thinking we're affecting local gravity, and we'd like to design a set of uh, experiments to see if we can put this to some practical use. So, in other words, you've, you've, while using a Ouija board, you've witnessed the board or the table levitating. Oh, more than that. I mean, we've witnessed the table levitating, the board levitating from the table, and uh, uh, the uh, planchette or, or device we're using for a thing to levitate above that, and we've seen the uh, board actually rotate. And uh, we'd like to know if we're, if we believe we're affecting local gravity, and there's, we're trying to get some experiment, some direction to get experiments to see if we can use this to lift heavier objects. I know Jim's going to weigh in in a, in a second, but let me ask you, I guess, the obvious question, Jeff, that everyone listening is, is, is dying to ask, and do you have any videotape evidence? Oh, absolutely not. We wouldn't even bother doing that. I mean, these are, these are just people that are, you know, using it for other 
reasons, but, you know, this is the effects we're getting from it. But why wouldn't you videotape it, I guess is my question. Well, you know, we, we, you know well, the main reason is uh, nobody's got, you know, the equipment really to do it, and nobody really would, it'd be a waste of time. Most people, when we see stuff that people videotape, even, you know, like UFO pictures, and that, they're always shot down anyway, so we figure if the person want, is interested enough, they can see it for themselves, you know, up live, personal. All right. Not, you know, not all this, you know. All right, let's get our mathematician skeptic in here, Jim. Okay, there are a couple of things. And first of all, Richard, I'd like to thank you for asking the question that was on the tip of my tongue as well as probably everybody else's, why he hasn't videotaped it. Um, Jeff, any phenomenon such as this, first of all, when it is a phenomenon involving the physical world. It's not so much the province of mathematics as it is of one of the sciences that it uses mathematics. But if you really have something like this, if something like this is really occurring, I guarantee that if you can demonstrate it, you're going to be one of the most famous people in the world. Now, by demonstrating it, I mean you're going to have to do something to convince people and that means convincing the scientific community as a whole that this is happening. And the mere fact that you are, uh, that you are refusing to videotape it or to record it or to make any attempt to actually objectively determine that what you think is happening is actually happening is a big strike against it being accepted. Um, certainly if you, you know, one of the, uh, w there was a very famous physicist in the 19th century, a man named William Crookes, who at the time, uh, said that, um, new forces must be found, uh, must be found. We are unacquainted with a sufficient number of forces to, to explain the work of the universe. And, um, gravity is a known force. Anti-gravity at the moment is not. It hasn't been demonstrated in the sense that you feel that you are demonstrating it now, but if you are demonstrating it, as I said, um, just invest the, uh, you know, invest the 40 or $50 needed to get a video camera. You know, you can just get, you know, a point and shoot has a video uh, attachment and make some attempt to verify it or alternatively get an independent, reliable person to record this and verify it, because without it, nobody is going to believe you. Well, your friends might believe you. Um, uh, people who are inclined to believe things like this might believe you. But in general, uh, a community such as the scientific community will not believe you without proof. Jeff, did you want to uh, respond? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm not a member of the scientific community, so I really don't care squat about whether I'm accepted by them or not. And I really would like to capitalize on this uh, for my own reasons. That's why we want the formula so we can design our experiments so we can do our own thing. I'm sure after all these years with how long these Ouija boards, I'm not the only one who's been doing this. So they must know darn well what they can be done with it. But I'm sure that there's some kind of for formula or some reason why this, you know, effect is going on. And, I, you know, I just think it might have to do with, like, how these big stones that they built a pyramid with were built or something. There might have been a way to get big, heavy objects to move. And well, but, Jeff, if you want to capitalize on it, you're going to have to go before, you know, up here in Canada, we have a show called The Dragon's Den, where inventors and so forth, uh, you know, pitch their ideas to capitalists, investors. Uh, you know, okay, never mind the scientific community. Maybe they're even more skeptical. Try to, try to convince adventure capitalists to buy into your idea. And, and I'm, you know, listen, I, I've heard so many anecdotal stories about weird things with Ouija boards. I think there might be something going on there. I happen to believe in the spirit world. Uh, but, uh, you know, a venture capitalist, there is a diehard skeptic. You need, you need to bring on someone to corroborate your story, a disinterested party, videotape evidence, something, Jeff. This is not being a debunker. This is, I mean, this, we're generally trying to help here. And, and, uh, uh I've, I've talked to you before, Jeff. I find your, your, um, your, um, experiments, if I can call them that, fascinating. Would love to hear more. But part of the problem, I think, is that when we're talking about, uh, and you refer to it as weird stuff, uh, let's set aside ESP and telekinesis and, and something that you, admittedly, you don't spend much time, uh, discussing in the book. You've sort of categorized it as weird stuff, and that is, let's say, the UFO phenomenon. And that's something that we spend a lot of time talking about on the program. Uh, because, 
uh, as you say, you know, part of the scientific uh, method is experimentation, and part of experimentation is something has to be, re- you know, repeatedly observed. So you can't put a UFO under a microscope. You can't get up close and touch it and, and tweak it and, and uh, you know, make notes and so forth, although some people claim that they have. But what do we do with the UFO phenomenon? Because in terms of, you know, observability, according to the UN, since 1947, Jim, 150 million people have reported seeing a UFO. Now, let's say 99% of those can be explained misidentification, swamp gas, uh, delusions, what have you. Even 1%, 1% of 150 million, that's 1.5 million people that have seen something in the sky. We don't know what it is. We can't explain it. So what do you, what do you do with the UFO phenomenon? There is a phenomenon. Something is going on. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. Something is going on. But whether the something that is going on is visits from extraterrestrial flying objects or whether it's something that is psychologically happening isn't clear, but it's certainly worth continuing, you know, it's certainly worth continuing investigation. But the absence of an explanation does not mean just because what, just because there are events that we cannot explain does not mean that an explanation does not exist. It just means that we haven't found the explanation at the moment. And yes, one possibility, and quite frankly, I think it's an extreme long shot, is that we are being investigated by curious, uh, by curious beings from other worlds. I think that's highly unlikely for reasons that basically stem from science. It's an extremely large universe. It requires an extreme amount of energy to get from another uh, another solar system to ours. And quite frankly, I'm not sure we're all that interesting. But nonetheless, that's just my particular point of view. But it doesn't mean that it can't happen. There's nothing in science that says UFOs are impossible, meaning that extraterrestrial visits from other species are impossible. I think there's a large body of scientists that believe that life has arisen on other worlds. Your caller, Jeff, was asking about equations previously. There aren't equations uh, for what he wanted to do at the moment, simply because he doesn't seem to be willing or able to perform experiments which would determine parameters which could fit into an equation. But there is a very famous equation called the Drake equation, which relates to the the number of intelligent species that would exist in our galaxy or in the universe. And it's a question that has been investigated by scientists. I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence that has been going on for, that has been going on for many years. And there have been occasional bursts of communications or at least signals that SETI has found that they simply cannot explain. But they know, and all scientists know, that just because you can't explain something now doesn't mean that tomorrow you're going to find a perfectly obvious uh, explanation for it. And one thing that should be brought up is that um, when you look at the idea of UFOs, there have been things that um, the UFO phenomena really started in 1947, and people look back on various drawings from different cultures and say, "Well, this could be a, this could be a UFO." And when Ezekiel saw the wheel, maybe that was a UFO also. But I think that the scientific community as a whole, because there's no hard, solid evidence, puts it in the category of might be. We're still willing to look at it. But here's, you know, when you were discussing with Jeff the idea of the dragon's den and inventors, one of the reasons that science is very conservative is because science has a limited amount of money to spend. And what it wants to do is it wants to spend it on ventures that will that will prove fruitful. It's willing to spend it on high-probability ventures with not much in the way of payoffs, but very likely to achieve the payoff. And it's willing to spend it on low-probability vo- low, uh, low ventures, which have a payoff that could be extremely valuable. For instance, there are numerous projects underway to develop fusion power, the same, uh, the same power that powers the sun, which could presumably generate power for, uh, for Earth, for all, you know, for into the conceivable future. It's very difficult, 
but because the payoff is so large, the government invests sizable sums of money in it. But at the moment, nobody seems to know what the payoff is for finding UFOs. There's no real solid evidence for it. And so you're not getting much in the way of government or scientific projects to being willing to investigate it. Well, maybe the payoff for, for discovering you know what UFOs are all about is the same as the fusion question, uh, energy. I mean, if these craft can traverse tremendous distances and so forth and seem to flit in and out of uh, reality and defy gravity and so forth. Maybe that's, it's all tied in together. But let me, let me move from the Drake equation to Sheldrake, Rupert Sheldrake, that is. And, uh, oh, about 10 years ago, he published a book called The Sense of Being Stared At, which examined the, the sort of the psychic staring effect. And there was an experiment where blindfolded subjects, they had to guess whether persons were staring at them or at another target. And according to Sheldrake, and again, there were tens of thousands of trials. 60%, 6-0, 60% of subjects reported being stared at when being stared at. 50% of subjects reported being stared at when they were not being stared at. So what does that mean? Uh, it suggests a weak sense of being stared at, but no sense of not being stared at. I'm not even sure what that means. What do you make of, of the work of Rupert Sheldrake and that, that sense of being stared at phenomena? Well, I certainly feel that we've all sensed the idea that we're being stared at. And I'm not familiar with Sheldrake's work, although I have seen his name in certain contexts before. I'm not familiar with this particular experiment, but I do know that to some extent this is tied up with the idea that um, a lot of our sen- uh, a lot of our senses stem from when we were lower level animals for whom sensory perception is extremely important. It's their very survival. They have to be able to know when they're being stared at by a predator. And to a certain extent, a lot of this information is encoded in our physical being. And it's a holdover from when we were animals. For instance, just like we have portions of our body that are no longer really used, but we're sort of stuck with them like the appendix. I think the idea that we have a sense of being stared at probably comes to a certain extent from the creatures that we were before we evolved into being humans. But doesn't that suggest the the existence of some sort of a subtle energy? How do we know we're being stared at if we don't see the person or the whatever staring at us? Doesn't that suggest the possibility there's the existence of a subtle energy we're picking up? I'm not sure whether or not it's a subtle energy, but I do believe, for instance, when you discuss things such as ESP, I would agree with Targ in that there is such a thing as ESP, but I'm not sure that his idea of what ESP is and mine are precisely the same. What I think of ESP is things such as Malcolm Gladwell mentioned in Blink, when you make these split-second decisions, And I think what ESP is sort of like is it's a combination of our senses and our brain putting all the information from our senses together in ways that we don't consciously realize. I think that that could explain a lot of what we consider to be ESP. And in a sense, it really is ESP. It's perception that even though some of it is derived from sensory information, some of it isn't. And the idea that we're being stared at, there's a point that I do make in my book. I believe that basically, even though I'm not sure that the energy that you describe is something that's immediate, that I can immediately put my finger on, basically anything we do creates a change in the universe. That change should be detectable. If you take a look at what we're planning to do, we have experiments now. We're planning on putting up telescopes that will enable us to look at the surface of planets that are light years away. Who would have believed that this was even remotely possible 50 years ago or even maybe 20 years ago? And yet, this is actually a project. Something that happens light years away on a planet is something that we can devise the machinery to detect. That's because a change is taking place in the universe and there's machinery to detect it. Science in general can't rule out anything. All it can say is whether or not something is probable or improbable and assess the degree to which it's probable or improbable. But I believe that basically anything that happens in the universe produces a change and that change should be detectable. 
whether or not it's detectable by instruments or whether it's detectable by our senses or whether it's detectable by some sort of senses that we have but have not yet come to grips with, that I don't know. Very quickly, theoretical physicists now talk about the existence of, I don't know what the number is now in terms of, you know, dimensions, whether we're at uh, 11, there are 11 dimensions or we're talking about, you know, things like hyperspace and, and, and these, and, and some of these dimensions are micrometers from our, from our, they're staring us right in the face, but we can't detect them. It's like the goldfish in a pond. He doesn't know, you know, above him, uh, there's this whole other world right. as we look down at the goldfish. So do you think that if these hyperdimensions exist, that that could explain a lot of paranormal activity because it's like you're looking down at the goldfish and you stick your finger down into the water. The goldfish can't even conceive of where that finger came from. So, you know, in his small mind, that's some sort of supernatural event. Do you think hyperspace can explain one day paranormal activity? I'm not sure, to be honest. But what I do think is that the idea of other dimensions is sufficiently viable from a standpoint of physics that what they are doing is they are trying to figure out experiments to see whether or not changes can be detected that the presence of other dimensions would induce. When you talk about paranormal phenomena, the paranormal phenomena of today might be the everyday occurrence of a hundred years from now. That's been the history of science. Jim, I got to I got to cut you short here. I apologize. Sure. We're out of time, but listen, let's do this. Let's pick this up again in a fascinating uh, conversation. I'd absolutely love to. We I've will. enjoyed it, and I would love to talk with Russell Targ. Well, I'll set that up. Jim okay, Stein. Terrific, Richard. The Paranormal Equation. Thank you, my friend. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.